Hey folks, this is Ian Foster, and this is If and When, a podcast where I talk to other creators about how and why they do their thing. To start, I'm talking to colleagues, friends, and veterans of the arts community at home here in Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. These are not so much traditional interviews as they're a chat over coffee or something a little stronger. So come sit in and have a listen. Hey, so this is the first one. Thanks for taking this risk with me. I thought about doing a podcast probably a year or two ago after spending the last several years just voraciously consuming them. Uh, Sometime on a tour of the northeast uh, seaboard of the United States, I just decided to swap out the usual um, music playlist for some interviews of a couple of different podcasts. And I just found the hours melted away, you know? Those long 45-minute to hour-and-a-half interviews with two people just talking just kind of made me feel like I was sitting at a table instead of alone in a car by myself. And it was comforting. Um, So I thought about doing one myself, and here we are. I don't know if this is going to be cool or lame or what, but I'm glad you're taking a listen to find out. Um, When I was trying to think of a topic for the show, you know, it it seemed like the possibilities were obviously endless, but I just love to talk about how the sausage gets made, I guess. That always seems to be a theme that comes back to me. How and why do people make stuff? I make stuff. I sort of have an idea why I make stuff. I spend a lot of time talking to other people about why I make stuff or why I don't want to make stuff anymore or why I want to make different stuff or how I managed to pull off making stuff in the past. And everybody's got that story if they've been around in this this community and, and felt that calling for, for a long time, whether that's music or writing or visual art, whatever. Um, and I realized I had enough friends that I could probably have pretty good conversations on mic if they were even half as good as the ones that I had off mic. And so that's where if and when came from. Yes, it is a lame pun on if, my initials. But it's also that obvious thing of, you know, if and when we make this, which is what every artist probably feels a little bit. um, That doubt mixed with the certainty that you have to. Anyway, whatever. Um... I've recorded a bunch of these already, but no intro so far. So this is my very first intro. It's for the very first person I spoke to, which was my friend Sandy Morris, who is a mainstay on the Newfoundland music scene as a often known as a side player, but of course so much more. That's a theme you'll see over every episode is all the different hats that people always wear. Sandy's a composer. He's a producer. He's a band leader. Um... Uh, he's he's a writer. He's all kinds of things. Um, and in this podcast, which I think we're going to divide into two parts, he talks about his first gigs in St. John's back in the 60s. He talks about playing at folk clubs like The Void, where he met a young unknown songwriter named Ron Hines. He talks about playing by ear and working on TV shows back when Newfoundland entertainment shows were a pivotal part of our identity how the culture of live music has changed on the island over the years. His first time hearing Sonny's Dream, being in the wonderful grand band, selling 25,000 copies of Living in the Fog as an independent band, writing music for Land and Sea, his various collaborations, 
Um, and and even more than that, somehow he's he's a great person to talk to. If if you've had the pleasure of talking to him yourself, you already know this. So I hope you enjoy my interview with Sandy Morris. I think I got my first guitar in 63 for my birthday. So that would have been July 63. But by June of 65, I did the school concert and I played for two choirs, three soloists, four folk groups, and a, and a rock band. And that was and that's that was the first year I did a TV show or and you know live performances at Mon and you know, all that kind of stuff. So I consider that the start of my professional career was 1965. Okay. Yeah, because everything happened that year. I, well, I, I graduated. Uh, high school in uh, spring of that year and went to university in the fall. Right. And university, if you remember back then, was free tuition. And then I think in 67, we started getting paid to go, 50 bucks a month. And I quit in 68. <laughs> <laughs> I was working so much, you know, I, uh, uh, I, mean, I was working every night. You know, uh, there were so many pubs and bars around then that had bands for seven nights a week, plus usually a Sunday or a Saturday matinee or both. And I couldn't keep up my grades, and I, I, you know, I was having a ball. Right. You know, I never even imagined that I'd be, you know, flat out playing guitar. And there I was. So I, I thought I'm going to fail out of university, or I could quit and go back when I'm, when you know, when the luck runs out, and I'm not, uh, I'm not making as much money as I am. Right. Now, but, was this all the, that picture you're painting? Was this all '65 essentially? Like you mentioned, a certain number of gigs that you had played at that yeah, time. Yeah. I mean, that seems. That seems really cool in in the sense that it seems like a lot as as a beginning. It seems like you just dived right in. Like it wasn't a period of I did the odd open mic and then years. No, later, no, I, no, no. Uh, I did there was a bunch of folk clubs around. There was like a place called the Cafe Y and a, a place called the Void, and I'd play all those. And they'd, they'd be basically free gigs. And of course, that's where I met Ron doing that circuit. Okay, but maybe a little later in the sixties. Might have been the early seventies when I met Ron. Right. But so I did all that. But then and then you know your school gigs. Right, uh, either playing for a dance after school or or a variety show or whatever. But when I went to to Mun, and there, you know there weren't as many guitar players around back then, and there were no guitar players that I knew of that could actually read anything. And I had the, the fortune, although I didn't think it was at the time, of hooking up with a bunch of fellows, a band called the Ambassadors, and they only read music; they couldn't play by ear. So there was a sax player, and and he'd buy sheet music down at Hutton's. And because he, he had a B-flat instrument, we'd tune the guitars and basses down a full step to get in tune with him. And so we could play the same chords that were on the print, printed on the page. Right, right, right. right. But uh, I learned to read at least chord symbols that way. And so all of a sudden, like, there weren't many guitar players around. There were none that could read a chord chart, and I could. And so, like, I, got, I started getting a bunch of TV work. I did all around the circle as part of the band for a while. <clears throat> well, that's going off. And uh, a whole bunch of other, I mean, like TV, back then there would be weekly series like Circle, but they'd also have these daily programs like chat programs where people would come on and they'd do, have coffee and, t and talk, but they would want to have some entertainment in those programs just to liven it up a bit, so you get a lot of, uh, you know, gigs doing that. There was a program called High Teens, which thinking back now, so it was not quite the state that teens were in back in my day. <laughs> <laughs> but it was basically the forerunner to uh, reach for the top. It was kind of a uh, high school quiz program. and But they would have a musical guest every week. Right. right? So there was a bunch of that going on. I, I And we, I, the band that I played in that became really popular back in the day was the Philadelphia Cream Cheese Band. And uh, we did all the Mun 
dances and uh, you know clubs downtown, the old mill, all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> what were but, you playing? What kind of stuff? Uh, we were playing blues and the kind of popular music of the uh, kind of that uh, more alternative popular music of the day. We wouldn't be doing bubblegum tunes, but we'd be doing Jefferson Airplane and Butterfield Blues Band and. Uh, you know that that kind of stuff, and uh, Laverne Squire sang. She used to do a great job on Grace Slick's White Rabbit, that kind of stuff. Really popular with the with the university crowd. Any, but in in the summer of '67, we were offered uh, to do music for a film that Colin Lowe was doing in Fogo Island called The Children of Fogo, and it was basically a film without any dialogue. And so they wanted to fill it up with music as much as possible. So we didn't even. We didn't see the film. We didn't have any discussions with anybody, but they wanted to hear us, so we went in and recorded a whole bunch of stuff just off the top of our head, some Newfoundland folk songs and blues instrumentals and just whatever we could think of to play and sent it off thinking this was the demo, and that's what ended up being on the film. Oh, wow. <laughs> you, you can still watch it online, uh, The Children of Fogo, yeah. So, but in anyway, to... To record for the film board, you had to become a member of the union, the musicians' union, AF of M at the time, now the CF of M. So I became a member of the union in 67, and then CBC stopped hiring me because they weren't unionized at the time, and they, they refused to pay union wages. Their argument was that in Halifax or Toronto or anywhere else in Canada, the production would hire union musicians who could sight-read, and so they wouldn't have to rehearse. So it would be cheaper, like just hire to get these guys going to play it off the page. But in reality, that never happened because the cameramen and sound men had to rehearse. So be, the, the guys on the band were working just as much as we were because, you know, even though they could sight read, they still had to run the whole show once or twice for lights and sound and all the stuff that goes into making up a TV show. So they ended up working just as much as we were. We'd do a rehearsal, and even though we couldn't sight-read, we'd learn to do it, you know mm. what I mean, right? And, of course, the big show out of Halifax at the time was Sing Along Jubilee, and most of those musicians were folk musicians. So they they were in the same boat we were, but they were unionized, and we weren't allowed. Anyway, eventually that came around. I think. By the by the end of the 60s, they had swung around in that, and everything became unionized, so I started getting work back on TV again. Okay. Once the 70s came along... Um, I don't know how I ended up being band leader. I think it was they had somebody hired to to lead a band one time for some show. Again, I don't know what the name it was. And he showed up late, like an hour late. So he got fired as band leader and I got hired. <laughs> and so I ended up being band leader or musical director, whatever you, you want to call it, on a whole bunch of shows in the 70s. There was a show called Kind of Country with Beth Harrington and Ron. I think Ron, maybe, yeah. And another show called Newfoundland Country, and then there were Anna McGoldrick shows, and there was just but well, they they had a weekly series on entertainment program. This was part of their, you know, part of their lineup, and they but they kept striking out. They kept putting on shows that were not as popular as All Around the Circle. The Circle was ran for eleven years, and it was the most popular show that they'd ever had on. I don't know why they stopped making it, but I guess the times were changing. When was the last episode? I think the last episode of All Around the Circle might have been around 71 or 72, something like that. Hmm. Maybe even 73, but somewhere around early 70s. It's something I've had uh, regular discussions with 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 people in, in in my generation of players that, you know, we hear about these shows like you're yep. describing, and yep. it definitely does not exist in the same way. I mean, oh, we, God, have, no. we have Out of the Fog, yeah. but it, it you know, and obviously I wasn't there in the period you're describing, but it yep. still sounds like it was a very different time. Oh, for... really? I mean, and they had, they had 
really, we always looked down our nose at production values, but they were actually quite high. I mean, you were still getting, like, we, I remember talking to one of the sound men at CBC, and, and he had just come back from Vancouver where they were all taken out at, as part of a training program and watched the recording of a Blood, Sweat, and Tears special. And I was talking to the sound man. I said, so how was all that? Said, Did you learn anything? He said, oh, Jesus, fantastic. He said, they had a mic on every drum. And I said, so would we be doing that here now? He said, oh, no, that'll never happen here. <laughs> how far we've come. Now how there's mics on every drum. Yeah. But, you know, you, you look back and, I mean, the costumes, makeup, the whole thing was really, for the time, really, you know, it was national standard, put it that way. You, right. you, you could have taken any of the shows that came out of here, or most of them anyway, and put them on in, in any you know, market in, in North America, and, and people, you know, they wouldn't notice a qualitative difference, for sure. Right. And, I mean, you know, I actually, when I started doing CBC, first, most shows weren't taped before videotaped uh, um, until it was the 70s before we got videotaped, so you would actually be performing live on TV. Mm. Nerve-wracking, yeah, because <laughs> you you don't get to go back and fix your mistakes. Was there any uh, any memorable moments of that where you were like, I can't believe that just happened and it was caught live? Uh, probably, probably lots of them. <laughs> uh, more often than not, you were just terrified, and so you'd be you'd be you know you'd be uh, nervous going on to the set, and then you'd be nervous doing your take, and then phew, it's over. But uh, it, it, again, like a fantastic training ground by the time videotape came along you were allowed to repeat stuff and get it right right (laughs) it was luxury you mentioned uh (laughs) you mentioned band leader there and and obviously you're uh you know a side musician for countless acts as well uh i mean i know as i've been a side musician a a lot less than like someone at at the front of the band i know there's sort of a mentality there can you talk a little bit about that like how you sort of process going into sort of one role or the other, how they contrast? Well, yeah, uh, like, I mean, when you're a sideman in a, in a situation like that, for example, you show up for your rehearsal, you show up for your gig, and, and you do it, but there's a lot of negotiating and uh, um, just creativity that goes in before the band ever shows up. So I'd have to go to all the production meetings and help pick out the material for the show. That would be... A, up to me to make suggestions, and then the producer would say, "Yeah, I like that. I want that. Don't want that." Um, but yeah, it's so you know, leader gets paid double because you do twice as much work. <laughs> and that was what it basically came down to. And uh, then, of course, you know, as time went on, I, I would write uh, rhythm charts for the band and and uh, you know work with the singers, make sure they were, we had the right keys picked out and all that stuff. Right. So I've been doing that since the '70s. Still doing it. Right. Feast of Colin every year. Um, let's flash back for a second as we were talking about, you know, those those initial few years you're playing. Um, yep. You kind of painted a bit of a picture there of the type of clubs, some of the folk clubs. Yep. Um, can you give me a sense of, of what it was like from, I guess, the audience perspective? You know, that's something, I, again, I have a lot of conversations with. I had a few with you yep. uh, uh, off mic, but uh, just just how maybe that's changed, you know, sort of how people go out and experience stuff now versus... Versus then. Well, uh, there's a number of interesting. The, the whole culture has changed since back in the '60s. One thing I just found out recently was like the the club where I played the, probably the most in my early career was the Old Mill on Brookfield Road, and I just heard on the radio since this rock and roll revival thing they did last week out there that the Old Mill and there was a place on Torbay Road called the Commodore Club and there was a place on Topsail Road called the Piccadilly, if I remember correctly. And they were all built 
outside the city limits during commission of government, which was just before we joined Canada, because there was a, a, a liquor rule that you weren't allowed to drink in a drinking establishment within three miles of where you lived. So they put these clubs out outside the city limits, and people would go out there, and you'd think nothing about going out and drinking all night and then driving back in over Brookfield Road. <laughs> <laughs> So, the, you know, the, that's changed. And, but people went there. I mean, the old mill had its own radio show for a number of years, at, at Saturday nights, and Joe Morrissey would have done that and appeared live on it. And, I mean, they, they were... They, and even while I was playing there, sometimes they'd have, besides the band, there'd be a stripper, and the band would play for the stripper. And sometimes they'd have a novelty act, a comedian, or, like, there was guys that would come in and break boards with their heads and hands, karate experts, you know what I mean? Put the thing, do a, a karate demo in the middle. You know, we could probably go back and play a show at the current Piccadilly. <laughs> it would be a similar to what you're describing. It would be a stripper <laughs> before the show. Yeah, and, it could uh, be, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it was a real... Uh, uh, and, but, and, and then, like I said, they all had matinees, but the thing was... The reason why Sunday afternoons were so popular for matinees was you couldn't go to a corner store and buy a beer on a Sunday. You couldn't go to a liquor store because they weren't allowed to be open. Uh, so, I mean, if you woke up with a hangover Sunday morning, you had no choice but to go to a bar to get a drink. <laughs> you couldn't take anything home with you. Right. So they were really, I mean, like that. You would block the joint, right? Because it was a afternoon. social. That's where you went exactly. for the, yeah. anything. Yeah. Yeah. You'd get bigger crowds Sunday afternoon than you would Sunday night. Right, basically, but you still play Sunday night too. Right, <laughs> right. And you know, it, it, like I say, all the bars had to have seven night a week entertainment. That people expected it. They just and they wanted to go out and have a dance. So it was, you know, usually uh, live rock and roll kind of bands that were that were playing. There were some uh, some rooms that were a little bit more sophisticated, where you might get folk music or uh, or even jazz. You know, like the, the place called the Tudor Inn, which is down on the War Memorial. Is the I think it's that second-hand clothing store now. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was fantastic, kind of underground cellar, stone walls and stuff like that. And uh, and uh, a real sophisticated crowd would go there, all the students and profs from Munn and all that. It was, it's kind of similar to what the ship in is today. Okay. They would have Ralph Walker play jazz on the weekends, and they would have the folk crowd. There were very, very little rock music in that venue. But then you walk across the War Memorial where the Stardust was, and that would be rock and roll until 3 o'clock in the morning. That, that for some reason, the Stardust had a different set of rules than all the other clubs. The clubs would go from 9.30 to 1 o'clock, and 1 o'clock was cutoff time. Except on the weekends, when they could stay open until 2. The Stardust stayed open until 2 every night and 3 on the weekends. So all the musicians and staff from the other bars would end up at the Stardust Friday and Saturday nights. Right. Or every night, really, because they'd be an hour later than wherever you were playing. So you'd go down for a beer at the, the Stardust afterwards. There's a few bars like that right now. Yeah. You know? We yeah. won't name them. You know? No. Uh, <laughs> but the, this, this, that particular bar was sanctioned. It had... It had a different set of rules than the other bars. I don't know how they got away with it. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, but they actually were, had a license to stay open later than everybody else. Maybe they were just allowed it because it was only the one bar. Right. I mean, there were places you could go, and if you ordered food, you could keep drinking until after one or two. Right. But uh, Stars was just a, strictly a dance bar. It had a, a dance floor was hydraulic. It would actually move up and down with the crowd. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. You mentioned meeting Ron at those folk clubs. Yep. I'd like to talk about that. I mean, uh, you know, a narrative that I've that I've heard a lot, I think you were the one to tell me this many years ago, is that Ron was the first Newfoundland artist to release an album of all original material. I, I, now, 
there was a band called Borealis who also released. They they consider themselves the first rock band to release an album of all Newfoundland material. Okay. I don't know if that was before or after Ron because when I met Ron, I think Discovery had already been out. Okay. Because uh, and he'd been to Toronto and was back again. I mean, he you know he we and interestingly we we actually grew up around the corner from each other in the summer times. I lived on on Henry Street and Ron. Uh, had a cousin on Dick Square, and he would come in and spend summers with his cousin on Dick Square. But in the summertime, I would be off at Mars with my family in the ca- at the cabin. So we actually never ran into each other, but we were right around the street. If if I'd been around in the summertime, we would have met. No no question about it. Right. But so but but he was you know uh, we were both mature by the time we we met for sure. Right. Yeah. Okay. So how did um. Like was Ron at the obviously Ron at the time was playing his own songs. Yes, Borealis obviously the same as well. Like there, so there was original music being played at this period of time, or were they just a couple of bands? That no, were there? there were people. I mean, like by by the early seventies, like once the Beatles established themselves, we all realized that the money to be made of music was in writing. So we all wrote songs. It's just that the, most of the rest of us weren't actually songwriters like Ron. <laughs> Ron came along and he had, you know, by the time I met him, he had a body of material. He had an album of original songs out. This was this guy wasn't fooling around. Like he was a serious songwriter way back then, and obviously had a talent for it. And we just became friends immediately. Like you know, I was kind of uh, people knew who I was because I was a guitar player who played the folk circuit a lot with lots of different combinations of singers and and other pickers and stuff. So Ron knew who I was when I met him, and I had no idea who Ron Hines was from Fairyland. Right. But, but we were we were great friends right away. I, I got an old handwritten set list home in a little book that I found a couple of years ago when I was going through my, you know, my old drawers and things. And it had a set list of me and Ron playing at a bar in the airport at the time. It was called The Hideaway. Hmm. And it's two sets of songs and most of them are covers with a couple of Ron originals and I've got another set list in the same pen from 1976 with Ron at the LSP Hall and all of the songs are Ron originals hmm yeah but that's you know two sides of that are when we're playing at a bar at the airport you're going to want to be doing covers that people relate to mm-hmm. and sneaking in one or two of your own songs but when you're playing at the hall and it's your own show you can afford to lay out all your own material right yeah Interesting. Uh, was there? Um, did you did you know kind of from the start? I mean, you you alluded to the idea that you know Ron was already a serious songwriter when you met him. Was mm. it was it evident to you right off the bat that it's like okay, this this person is going to have you know some version of the legacy that Ron I guess has now, or was it sort of just a yeah he's another guy playing music? No, no. You, Ron, you know, stood out from the rest of every all the rest of us that were trying to write songs and making up songs and stuff because he he really had a great sense of melody and a great sense of how to marry lyrics to a melody. Mm. Yeah, he had a, he had a real gift for songwriting. Like the rest of us, I mean, I suppose you know some of us might have wrote half decent poetry, <laughs> right? But we didn't have that extra thing of connecting the poetry to the melody. That seemed to be really natural for Ron, and uh, and he, I mean, he he obviously excelled, and he, and I always liked to sing. And a lot of people didn't like his singing all that much, but but I always thought it was great. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, do you remember the first song you heard from him? No. Okay. I can remember the first time I heard Sonny's Dream. Hmm. He'd been away again, and he was staying in a cabin on the Holyrood Access Road that Mary McKim was renting, and she let Ron crash at her place for a few days, and he invited me out for an afternoon and we uh, uh, just started chatting and he said I got some new songs going to play for you and then he, play, he played Sonny's and of course once you heard Sonny you knew 
it was a hit. It had to be a hit. Right. Uh, so, uh, and I don't remember what year that was, but uh, it would probably have been after 76. I don't think Sonny was on that set list from the hall, although I, might, I could be wrong. It'd be interesting to find that out. I'm not sure exactly when he wrote it. Hmm. But he also had a bunch of, he had a uh, movie scene from that session. That's the first time I heard a movie scene was out there too. Right. Yeah, it was a really interesting day and uh, and kind of mind-blowing. Because yeah, he, he bumped up a notch from, you know, like he'd always written good songs. And I, I loved playing all his uh, like stuff off Discovery. I, I thought they were all really nice tunes. Mm-hmm. But there, there was another level when he came back from Toronto that time and had Sonny and Movie Scene and a whole bunch of other tunes that, you know, he, he, he'd upped his uh, game a little bit. What do you think happened there? Do you think it was just living life? Or? I think just living life and, and, and uh, you know, developing his craft and probably living in Toronto again. There was probably lots of stuff that inspired him. Right. Lots of other writers and lots of experiences. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Uh, can you correct this story for me? Because I've heard this story uh, a couple of different ways that um, Peter Narvaez first mm-hmm. heard Ron play at the ship. Yes. And he was playing a Ron Hine, or he's playing a Peter Narvaez song. Well, th- my version of that story, and I'm, I'm not sure how accurate it is because all of the characters involved told, you know, Ron would tell the story and Peter would tell the story, and there's always discrepancies. Yes, yeah. <laughs> But my understanding was that it was Peter's first night in town, and he took a cab from the airport to his uh, apartment, and he asked the cabbie where he'd go hear some live music. And he it was the Browndolph Lounge, which is not far from here. It was uh, at the top of the steps going down to George Street. There's still a pub there. It was up on the second floor. You had to come up the stairs. Peter, was while walking up the stairs to hear Ron, who he had no idea who Ron was, was singing one of his songs from... It was an album called Home Gas that Neil Rosenberg played on and Peter played on. Right. And Neil had brought a copy, or we, we got turned on to it through Neil and, and Mary McKim again, and Fred's ordered some copies, and we all bought copies of, of Home Gas and, and really liked it a lot. And so Peter was walking up over the steps and heard Ron singing one of his songs, but by the time Ron finished the set, he had done like three Peter Narvaez songs from that Home Gas album. Which, you know, just to jump in, I can't, can't imagine... You know, in today's age of you can hear anything at any time, yeah. that w- that seems less miraculous. Yeah. But that must have been a total trip for Peter at that period of time, coming to Newfoundland yeah. from. Because where was Peter from again? Uh, from this, this, yes, I don't know. He spent some time in Maine. He's from somewhere on the eastern seaboard of the U.S., but I'm not exactly sure where. Yeah, but it must have felt like coming to the oh, other side of the moon absolutely. and then getting to hear three of his songs in a single set exactly. at the first bar he went to. I mean, it just yeah. seemed like, to be honest, that's why I, I, that's the beginning of this story. And I was like, I need someone to correct this for me because this yeah. feels like, you know, folklore or something. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure it was the Browndolph Lounge, not not the ship in. And I don't remember if I was there or not, but I remember meeting, I met Peter for the first time at a club called The Light, which was down in the, uh, what is now... The, the Fortis building, is it? On, on, on the end of Water Street there, in the Parkway, you know, oh, yeah. Prescott yeah. Street. Yeah. yeah. There was a, a pub in that on the ground floor, a, a big bar, a restaurant bar. And I was playing there with Ralph Walker, and Peter came in with a bunch of friends and introduced himself to me and said, Hi, my name is Peter. I just moved here, and, you know, we should get together and jam sometime. Yeah. So I said, Yeah, and I gave him my address. I had a little apartment on, uh, on uh, um, down by Bannerman Park a little basement apartment, and I invited Peter up to jam. And so Peter shows up Saturday night, and I had my acoustic guitar there, and Peter walked in with a guitar and an amp and a microphone and a mic stand and an entourage of people. <laughs> Brought his own audience with him. Amazing. And, I mean, 
Peter was like, I mean, I, I couldn't keep up with him. I, didn't, I don't know where he was coming from because he, he just had such a wild style and uh, didn't play what to me looked like regular chord shapes on the guitar. <laughs> That's an E. <laughs> uh, so it was kind of embarrassing first meeting because I, I really I didn't feel like I could keep up with him at all. But yeah. we ended up, after that, getting together again and working a bunch of stuff out. And uh, He was a really original player and singer. Peter, nothing like him. Yeah, he taught yeah. me. Uh, he taught me folklore. Oh, did he? Actually, yeah. at, at yeah. the university. Yeah. Um, just to come back to this story for a second. Yeah. So that's the beginning of the story. I've heard there's more to this story. In terms of what, though? I mean, uh, uh, what I'd heard was that um, Ron was playing. It wasn't necessarily going particularly well. Uh, the audience was, I don't know, not interested in hearing his songs or something. And that someone yelled out something to the effect of, like, what are you even doing up there? And Ron replied, I'm trying to save your fucking culture. No, that was Noel Din said that. That's who? Noel Din. Okay. Uh, All right. Almost the same location. That was a pub called Martha's, and it was upstairs on Water Street, uh, down where kind of where Tweed is now, up, up above that. Okay. And it was a, a club called Martha's, and the Duff were playing. And, uh, uh, you know, like the Duff... They they did well at the Arts and Culture Center, but when they got out in the club scene here in St. John's, you know, people wanted to hear dance tunes, right. cover, cover tunes. Right. They really weren't that. They go to Toronto and they block places. Right. But around Newfoundland, they weren't all that popular except for like the really artsy crowd. So if they did a show at the Arts and Culture Center, the place would be full. Right. But if they played downtown, nobody really wanted to hear it. Mm. So anyway, Noel was getting frustrated that nobody was paying attention to what they were doing. A, a lot of slow, heavy Newfoundland folk songs. <laughs> And he stood up behind the drums and said, we're preserving your fucking culture. <laughs> <laughs> that really sounds like no. And that's, I wonder, it did, it did the sort of bookend of that story it still happen? Because I, I, I was told that Peter wrote an essay, f- like, for Memorial University that had that in the title. Like, that was... We're preserving your fucking... Is that right? right? Like that, and it had, it, it was something to do with, like modern Newfoundland folk songs right. but that was sort of the quotational title <laughs> now again who know obviously the first part was inaccurate I don't know if that's yeah. true but it, it really made me laugh at the time yeah. and again I wasn't there that night I can't testify to it in person but that's the story that I've heard very strongly from a bunch of people oh wow but um, and of course the other famous Figgy Duff story is they were playing around the bay somewhere and they were in one pub there was another pub up the road with a local band playing and they did their first set, and the place emptied out. And uh, the club owner came down and said, "Boys, he said, you know, you might as well give it up because nobody's coming back here tonight. They're all up at the other bar." So the boys packed up and went up to the other bar, like you would. And a fella came up to him and said, uh, "I heard you fellows were playing down to the light." Hey? And uh, Dave Pantic said, "Yes, yes, yeah, we, we were just playing there." He said, and the other, other fellow said, he said, "I heard you fellows weren't were the monkeys, fuck, eh?" <laughs> So Monkey's Fuck got to be the name of a band. Absolutely. Point, right? <laughs> They're probably playing tonight at CBTG's. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah. Oh, that's good. So, okay, so you're um, you're on the scene. You're you're playing a bit with Ron. How much am I skipping over to, to ask about Wonderful Grand Band? Well, Grand Band came about at the end of the 70s. So, so we would have recorded the Root Cellar series. And again, the, the, story, the backstory behind that was I, I had been doing all these TV series as band leader. And Kevin O'Connell, who produced Circle and all these other shows that we've been doing, called me into the office one day and he said, look, he said, uh, we keep trying to get back, you know, the popularity that we have with All Around the Circle and we keep striking out. We obviously don't know what we're doing. You're out there in the, in the 
cultural world out there. You're working with, you know, all the actors and writers and singers. And come up with an idea for a show. I didn't know what to think. And I went and I talked to Greg Malone. And I said, Dr. After offer me a show. I don't know what, 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 you know, I haven't got a clue. And he said, what would you like to do if you had, you know, if, if it wasn't a show? If, if you just had, And I thought I'd like to put a band behind Ron because I always heard all around songs with backing vocals and a drum beat and, you know, like a full production. And I'd like to do Newfoundland folk songs, or Newfoundland fiddle tunes. And I, I was really influenced back then by the Mahavishnu Orchestra, John McLaughlin. And John McLaughlin and his fiddle player, whose name I can't think of at the moment, played all the melodies in unison. No, I'd heard uh, um, Red Island at the Atlantic Folk Festival that summer, and they were doing fiddle tunes, Newfoundland fiddle tunes, and Bruce was playing the melody, but he was playing the melody in first position, uh, like we're natural for a guitar player. I right. thought if you move that up to where it was in the same range as the violin, that might be a really interesting sound. So uh, we had already done a concert at the LSPU Hall with Ron and myself, and Rocky Wiseman and Brian Hennessy playing bass, Bonnie Olton singing harmonies, and Kelly playing fiddle. And I had also been working in uh, in rock bands, cover bands with Glenn Simmons for years by that time. Mm -hmm. So uh, we got, uh, when the idea to put a band together, that was the band I wanted to have. Mm -hmm. And so that's the first grand band was, was that lineup with Glenn. And, uh, and Greg suggested, why don't you be the band in a, in a local pub and me and Mary will be the owners of the pub that will give us a situation where we can have a little storyline going on. So, you know, right? Mm -hmm. So that was the idea that I pitched called the Root Cellar to, to Kevin and he liked it. Unfortunately, when we got in the studio and started actually doing it, there was a serious culture clash between, <laughs> between the, the creative element, the band and, and Greg and Mary Walsh, and the production team. And people would say things like, I mean, crew would say stuff like, who's Bruce in this fucking show anyway? <laughs> <laughs> because Greg and Mary had really strong ideas on how they wanted to be lit, how they wanted to be shot. Don't no, don't shoot it from that angle because it'll make us look... So, that, that, you know, that was unheard of back then. You were given the privilege of doing a TV show and you were told exactly where to stand right. and how, how you were allowed to dress and how you were allowed what you were allowed to say and all those. It was, you know, very, very, very uh, strict. Mm -hmm. And we weren't like that. Mm. But they loved the band, so what they did after Root Cellar, was only six episodes ever made of that, in which we had, Emil was in on that, and Minnie White, and a whole bunch of great guests. Mm. Uh, they kept the band, and kept the name Wonderful Grand Band, but started doing other shows, like with Anna McGoldrick and uh, uh, David Michael, Beth Harrington. So we were still the band with, with the addition of a keyboard player. I think Rick Hall came in and played keyboards, and maybe we might have a steel guitar player from time to time, like that. But the but the core unit was the wonderful grand band, hmm. and we did another two years of television shows in that format before the band itself got so popular that CBC came back again with Jack Kellum as producer because I think by this time Kevin had retired. And Jack thought we could take the show that you're doing live and just shoot it, and we'd have a TV series. And we agreed to do that. And by then, the lineup had changed. We had Jamie Snyder playing fiddle, and we had uh, uh, Ian Peary playing bass. Hmm. So, And that was the band that took off. Hmm. Yeah. It, it was incredible. We, I mean, we did, uh, they did CBC, you know, they regularly do the polls to see what the popularity is. We had 90% of the eyeballs on the island of Newfoundland. 
on Monday nights at 7 o'clock were tuned in to watch. And it was right across the demographics from little kids five years old to grandmothers in their 90s. Mm. Everybody watched it. And in school the next day, all they, the teachers dreaded it because all the kids would be doing the skits from the night show before, right? <laughs> That's amazing. I'm always so fascinated by, uh, I guess, the hindsight of looking at uh, looking back on moments like that, I guess, you know, obviously that's a, a milestone, you know, clearly. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's sort of, I always find it fascinating, those things that we all think, oh, this is going to be big and then it isn't. Or vice versa, where you're like, we just did this thing and then it turned out to be big. Uh, maybe you also knew it was going to be big and it was. Like, how did you guys feel about that? We at, didn't know what was going on. I mean, like we, and in fact, to, to, to make it even more complicated, like after the Root Cellar series was canceled and we, when we still worked on TV we went out and played as a live band with this with no comedians just the band because mm. I mean, we were working on TV all the time and we were you know we were buddies and hanging out we'd been in bands together all our lives so we started playing gigs at Martha's the pub we were just talking about at the Strand Lounge in the village in the Avalon Mall and we dropped like a lead balloon like nobody wanted us nobody wanted to hear like, the same problem that Figgy Duff had nobody wanted to hear a bunch of original material and a bunch of fiddle tunes right it hadn't achieved that status yet of being cool right uh, and then we were invited to do in 79 the Root Cellar would have gone on the air in 78 we started writing it and preparing it in 77 end of 77 in summer of 79, there was an event in Toronto that may still go on, I don't know, but it was called Toronto Caravan, in which all the various ethnic groups in Toronto would have their own pavilion and have their own music and food and cultural things. So, you know, there'd be a big Caribbean element and there'd be Africa and there'd be Russia and all these various cultures would have their own. Newfoundland was the only province of Canada that had its own booth, its own pavilion. And we were invited to play that with the Grand Band, but they wanted to have Greg... Uh, as well, they wanted to have a front man for the band, not just music. They wanted to have some comedy, Newfoundland comedy, and that was the first time we'd gone out and played live with Greg. All the other gigs we'd done live were just the band stand up and play your songs. Greg had all these little sketches worked out where he, you know, connected with Ron or members of the band, whatever like that, and he danced, which and we'd say, Greg would say, "I'll dance to that one now." And we'd never seen him dance before, didn't know what to expect. And all of a sudden, he comes flying into the middle of the stage and dances up a storm. And it went over like... We played... That gig was at the Masonic Temple in Toronto on Yonge Street, which Hendrix had played there. You know, mm-hmm. It was a, a rock uh, temple. I mean, it was more than just a Masonic Temple. It was a place where all the heavy-duty rock bands played. And we packed the place three shows an evening. We'd do a half hour, and then we'd be off for an hour, and then we'd do a half hour, and we'd be off for another hour. Place would empty when we weren't on stage, and when we were on stage, the place was and that's a big room. That's I'd say six, seven hundred people, mm-hmm. and we did three weeks like that, yeah. and uh, uh, it was so huge. When we got back home, we thought, you know, we got to get Greg out to do some gigs with live because that that point changed the whole the reaction that we're getting. Now, when Tommy saw Greg. Uh, uh, up on stage with a band behind him he had a fit he could not stand not to be a part of it and Greg wanted it because Tommy was also a writer so Greg was finally hard to keep up writing material like, uh, new stuff because you know it's comedy it's not like you can't go out and do your, your like, like you can go out and play Sonny's Dream every night for the rest of your life but you can't tell the same jokes every night for the exactly, rest of your life right? yeah. so he really wanted the extra creative 
boost to have Tommy in the band with him. And of course, Tommy came in and brought it. The whole the whole situation changed altogether. I mean, we just took off like all of a sudden you you couldn't get into a place where we were playing. Right. There'd be a li- lineups outside the, the rooms wherever we, we went. There'd be like you know, place was pandemonium. And when you say that, are you talking? Well, obviously you had an amazing success in Toronto there. Yeah. And you're talking about the island. Yeah. Uh, did you? The band toured at least once. I remember you telling oh, yeah, me like no, across Canada. Yeah, we did two, uh, two all the way across Canada. Two all two, the way across. Two tours. Canada. But we started touring Newfoundland, and after uh, that would have probably been around 1980, and then we decided. Uh, I, I guess it would have been around 79 that we go out to Stephenville and record an album. Right. Which we did and then released that. And I think it was the summer of 80. Now, by the summer of 80, we were we had the, the, the new TV series going. We were selling out rooms everywhere we went, including Halifax and, and the Maritimes and Cape Breton and Moncton, New Brunswick. I mean, we, were, we had the Maritimes sewed up, basically. We had enough money to pay for that record ourselves out of our own pocket, $50,000 album. That's a lot of money back in... 1980. A lot of money now. Oh, but it's a lot of money now. You don't see many records getting made for that now, right now. There's three weeks in a studio, living in a studio, basically, in, in uh, somewhere outside Toronto, up around Markham, Ontario. And it was an old abandoned schoolhouse. It was actually a great place to record. There were no distractions. Just, uh, it was Mennonite country, so you'd, you might see somebody go by on a horse and cart. You very seldom saw anybody go by in a car. <laughs> right. Yeah, and, uh, and that, you know, and then... Uh, things got bigger and bigger. We started to talk. we played Toronto a bunch of times. Um, Vancouver, we we did uh, the Commodore Club, which again was a, a major icon of a of a room in in Vancouver. Everybody and his dog played there, and Denise Donlan actually promoted that show. Oh yeah, and she was terrified that you were Newfoundland band coming all the way from Newfoundland, and who's going to go see him? You couldn't move in that room when we when we finished up that night you are ankle deep in glass and beer the, the, the people that own the bar and people that managed the, the room and all that never seen anything like it right everybody was thrilled now to put that in perspective we also played Coquitlam and, and had nobody <laughs> <laughs> but I mean we were that, that, that last tour we did we, we had Mary and Kathy in the band as well up, up front comedians so there were 10 people on stage, 14-person crew to take all the way across the country and back, and it was mm-hmm. just too expensive. Right. Uh, you might get in the middle of nowhere and have a gig booked. Uh, I know we had one booked in somewhere in northern B.C., and it was just one of those gigs to get you from, you know, to the next yeah. important gig. So yeah. we're probably on our way back to Halifax. But his father died, and he had to cancel the show. So then we've got 14 people in the middle of New Brunswick that had to be put up for the night, fed, and paid. You you couldn't take a band on the road and not pay him just because your gig got canceled. Yeah, right. So, yeah, it was was too hard. And uh, we should have... And, of course, you couldn't stay home and play uh, that often because you were too big. You know, know, we were at the stage where we'd have to do five or six nights at Holy Heart or the Arts and Culture Center to make it worthwhile to play back home and right. then, you, then you couldn't play again for a year basically unless right. You, right yeah totally yeah mm-hmm. that old conundrum mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how did that how did that feel at the time that must have been interesting like what was the sort of mindset of you know I'm imagining this band from Newfoundland who you know at the time I guess there was no there was no prototype at all for this right like there was no obviously Great Big C was much later oh yeah, yeah. Uh, you know Buddy Wuss's name wasn't happening at no, that time no that's right so I'm imagining that that was probably the first band like you were in some Uncharted Waters at that oh point. yeah I don't, but big time and nobody I mean and you know like uh, there was no 
infrastructure here, no management or, or agents or any of that kind of stuff. So we had to do all of that through Halifax. Okay. Right. right. Brooks Diamond and there was a fellow named Doug Kirby and was, you know, a bunch of different people over the years. But, um, no, and, you know, long distance calls alone trying to book a tour across Canada. And back in those days, you know, you didn't get a break on your phone bill at all. Right. And, and to phone BC, you know, you'd be up in the middle of the night half the time because of the time difference. Uh, you, you know, so you, you could actually end up being on the phone from 8 o'clock in the morning until 12 o'clock at night by the time you dealt with all the different people you had to deal with. Right? Totally. <laughs> <laughs> So, so I mean, I guess the the end of the grand band was related to, as you said, just the sort of untenable nature of a giant crew that you were trying to. Tour yeah, exactly, and and the fact that you couldn't sustain yourself locally. I mean, unless you only wanted to play three or four times a year, and keeping that many people on the road was just it just got to be too bulky and, and unwieldy and. And also we had, you know, we, 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 we put fog up. Fog did really well for us. With I think about twenty five thousand units sold, all on our own. Uh, but we have been negotiating with, with record labels. Thank God we never signed with anybody. <laughs> really? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, we wouldn't own Fog album now, and and right. that but it probably wouldn't have turned out the way it did because it would have had record label influence on it. Uh, the big deal with the record labels, what when we we go to meetings, like, you know, uh, Capitol Records or, or Warner Brothers, and they say, you know, man. That's your 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 show's really good. The comedy's so funny, and uh, and uh, all those jigs and reels, you know, they're great. But uh, we don't know what to do with them. <laughs> we got no way to promote that shit. Right. They knew how to promote a rock band. Right. And that's so that's what they wanted to hear. They would they were all wanted to hear more rock and roll, more more rock kind of tunes. Forget the fiddle stuff. They right. didn't know what to do with that. Forget the comedy. I but love the, but, you now. Change. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. But I mean, that what made us different from every other band out there was that we had the fiddle tunes and the comedy. Right. <laughs> so that that was what they wanted us to get rid of. When it was what made us unique. So, so you know, and now we still sell uh, uh, "Living in the Fog." It, you know, I supply Fred's. You know, three or four times a year, and it's always for sale down there, and it's it still sells. That's the end of part one of my conversation with Sandy Morris. Tune in next week where the other half will be online, available for you to listen. And then each week after, we'll have a new guest. Thanks again for listening to the first episode, and we'll see you next time.